Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5. If you brought one or a device, and if you didn't bring either, we'll put it up on the screen. And while you're turning there, I'm real excited here in a few weeks. I think right after Easter, we have a partnership class. I think it's going to be the first one of 2019. A partnership class is basically where we explain who we are as a church. Um, we have it before the service. It's a four-week class. So if you're interested in learning a little bit more about legacy and who we are as a church, that would be where you'd want to go because you have full access, ask as many questions. You kind of maybe learn a little bit of why things are maybe different than what you experienced in your last church. Um, I get to teach that class. It is my favorite class to teach. Of all the classes we do, I love the partnership class. Um, there's no commitment in it. You could go to a class like that and decide that you don't want to be a partner. I would highly recommend you come if you're at least interested in something like that or what it means to partner with any church as far as that's concerned. Um, so very excited about that. Um, okay, Matthew 5. This is going to be a helpful passage for us. It is a difficult passage. Um, we're going to be in verse 27. This is in the middle, or really not the middle, probably the first quarter of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And this is what he says to us today. This is the word of the Lord for us. Matthew 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Okay. You know, often, at least for me, when teachers or preachers like me speak on the fall in the garden, right, it can come across very symbolic, very mysterious, right? I think that's probably a lot of the reason that some scholars, not very many, but a few scholars, actually view what happened in the Garden of Eden as more metaphor than reality, right? Or more allegorical than what really happened. That is a temptation for us because it doesn't seem or feel as real as other stories in the Old or the New Testament. Like when we read about David or we read about Paul or we read about Peter, it feels more real, doesn't it? It feels more substantial and less mysterious, less symbolic. But whenever it comes to this moment in the garden where everything that was right and beautiful becomes undone, it just seems fantastical, doesn't it? Complete with talking serpents and fruit from this magical tree and fig leaves and bushes, and it just seems so otherworldly, so mysterious. So I think it's a temptation for us to think that it's not real. I think it's also tempting for us to view the fall, humanity's fall, as this moment where we become slightly broken, but not completely broken. Yes, corrupted, but not totally corrupted. We're still a little bit intact, right? I mean, when it comes to people like terrorists or pedophiles, they're completely broken, but for you and me and your neighbor, we're just kind of somewhat broken. We have dents and dings, maybe wrinkles that we need to have ironed out, but for the most part, we're not thoroughly broken, we're just partially broken, right? Not tremendously, just barely. I think this is a small view of sin that we have. Here's the truth about the garden. The truth about the garden is that when Adam and Eve rebelled in that miserable moment on that day, 
Creation itself, and when I say creation, I don't just mean mankind. I mean everything from the leaves on the tree to the animals to the stars in the heavens. Everything in God's cosmos broke into a billion pieces on that day. Test me in this. Read the Bible. Start from Genesis 1-1. Just start reading and cruising through it. You will only get 60 verses in before you see brokenness on display, right? You see lying, you see hiding, you see deceit, you see shame, you see open rebellion. Keep reading. 24 verses later, your first murder. All within the first 100 verses of the Bible. And then it just gets out of control after that, right? I mean, we're thoroughly broken. Creation is totally and thoroughly broken. I mean, when you read the Bible, the narrative of God, or or even history, just put the Bible inside of history, just say history, it kind of demands humanity ask the question, how do we fix what is broken? How How do we fix this? How do we fix creation that is broken? I mean, that is the soil of the gospel. The gospel is good news only when you understand we are totally, thoroughly, not mysteriously, literally broken people. Then the gospel becomes good news. And nowhere are we more broken than in our sexuality. I mean, ever since Genesis 3, we stopped being sexually intact people. And what God designed to be beautiful, what he designed to be brilliant turned very toxic, and mankind would even invent ways to abuse, and we would invent ways to express how broken we really are. Consider for a moment that 15% of the internet is pornography. 15. It actually garners more bandwidth than Twitter, Amazon, and Netflix combined. Combined. It makes more money than the NFL, the NBA, and Major League Baseball combined. Over $100 billion a year, right? Those stats, by the way, they're four years old. With, with virtual reality developing as quickly as it is, most consultants that are in that field, they say that they believe that the pornography industry online will double in the next decade. Double. That's, that is fantastical. And even the demographic of pornography is widening. It used to be just a thing dudes did, right? A thing that guys were drawn to. Right now, one out of three millennial women search for something pornographic at least once a week. One out of three, right? It's not the same old thing anymore. So can we agree, before we even really examine the text we just read, that culture at large mishandles the gift of sex, and you're not immune to the effects of it? You're not immune to it. So Jesus is speaking out here on lust. And he's treating it a little bit like he did anger in the breath he just had before this one, right? And with anger, he had to kind of redefine it. He's having to do the same thing with lust right here because lust is not just adultery. And lust isn't even something that we just do with our eyes. It's also what we do with our heart, what we imagine with our mind, what we hope for. I mean, for instance, romance novels. It's fascinating. When I started looking into just romance, you know what makes up one-third of all fiction writing? One-third. It is the most lucrative. If you wanted to start and just start writing books and make a ton of money, your surest bet in making money faster than everybody else is to write a romance novel, right? It's the fastest way to do it. And then what's interesting is that most people, when they buy romance novels, it is in the store where they can see the cover. Because after all, the cover of a romance novel is just a billboard for the flesh, is it not? Fabio himself has been on the cover of 466 romance novels. 
That is fascinating. 466. And there are actually sites online, because this is who we are as humanity, because people have so much time on their hands. We have sites online that will rank how, how steamy, how awesome the covers are, not the books themselves, but the covers to romance novels, right? I'll save you the trouble. This is what they all have in common, right? Guy with no shirt on, got like men's fitness model with no shirt on, CrossFit champion, no shirt on, woman in what looks to be like a prom gown or something, and usually like a shoulder's coming off. The title is written in cursive, okay? That is the every romance novel cover, unless it's been written in the last six or seven years. Then one of them's a vampire or a witch or something like that, and everything stands the same. Why is it so appealing when people see that? Why do they grab it off the shelf and buy it? Because it promises a reality that's different than the one that they have. It promises a reality that is significantly different than what they experience. It's not real. It's the furthest thing from real. What would the cover look like if it was real? It would look like a mom, right? Not a single way. It would look like a mom in her sweats with no makeup, hasn't showered in three days, no, no buff guy holding her. She's holding a baby who spit up on himself so much that there's like no clothes. So no, no naked guy. It's a naked baby, right? That is the scene. The guy's nowhere to be seen or maybe he's out trying to change the oil or paying someone else to change the oil or something. It doesn't feel romantic. It doesn't seem romantic. Nobody buys a book like that. That's the life you try to get out of, not the life you try to crawl into. And it's not just young, single, white women with a ton of cats that buy these books, too, right? They're not spending $2 billion, $2 billion, B, a year on these books. The demographic for the average person buying a romance novel, married woman over the age of 45, right? 20% of them are not white. 20% of them are actually men. The demographics are getting a little bit more foggy, aren't they? And this has ramifications, deep ones. When we expose ourselves, either through what we read or what we see, and we fire off our imaginations into toxic directions, we convince ourselves that there are no effects and no ramifications, but that's where we couldn't be more wrong. It won't stay hidden, lust. It ruins us. It destroys relationships. It craters intimacy, which some of you, if you're married and you grew up struggling with in, this, in the past, you know exactly what that's like. It objectifies people, it crushes marriages, it brings loads of shame. That's why many of you are nervous right now. You're hoping this is the fastest sermon I ever preached in my life, right? It's not a comfortable topic. I mean, can we just look at the most obvious ramification, adultery, how when lust is carried out to the furthest reaches, we get exactly what Christ is talking about right now in this moment in his sermon. Jesus is connecting lust and adultery in a similar way that he connected anger and murder in the very last passage, right? That's what we see. By the way, studies suggest that one out of four married couples will experience at least one moment of infidelity. One out of four. That's 20 years old, that statistic, by the way. 20 years. Why? How does that happen? Why so many marriages? I was talking to my wife yesterday. The last five times, me as a pastor, the last five times I've walked with somebody through divorce. All five of them, 100% of them, had infidelity as the core reason. But when they were at their, their altar, when they were getting married, 
that wasn't what they had in mind. But something started in seed form in the heart, in lust, and it ended up in something that crushed people. Lust breaks marriages the same way anger begets murder, and the enemy absolutely loves it, and the enemy doesn't care if you spend any money on it. Doesn't care if you're addicted online, doesn't even care if you've got a bunch of books at home. What he wants you to think is that it's tamed. That for you, it's not a, not, not a thing you need to think about very much. Maybe it's a back burner issue, right? You know, one more of the insidious effects and ramifications of a lust-filled heart is the shame it brings. If you've ever struggled with, with a pervasive addiction to pornography or something that fires off lust very often, then you know what I'm talking about, the shame that it brings. What shame does is it whispers in your ear that you are not enough, not anymore. That you can't just rush from the red light district of your mind straight to the feet of Jesus. Oh, you can't do that, at least not for a few weeks till the sting wears off, right? There's too much shame right there. That's why if I were to say, hey, listen, do you realize that one second after you looked at something you should, one second after you closed the window of I shouldn't be here.com, one second after doing that, you can rush straight to Jesus and celebrate his love over you, you would think, I, I don't know, man. That seems too quick to, to just connect those two things. That's how, that's how heavy shame is. That's how radically weighty it is. So two things we know. We are a needy people, a lust-filled people, and without God's help, we have no chance, no chance. And the second thing is, is we know that there's no way Jesus is going to teach this new distinct people on what a gospel-shaped, gospel-framed life looks like without touching lust. He's got to talk to that, right? No way he's skipping over that. So let's look back, Matthew 5. I'm just going to go over the first two verses again. Just to repeat what Jesus said, he says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, at this point in Jesus' sermon, everybody's listening. That's if they made it this far. If they made it past his little, his little talk on anger, by now they're squirming in their seat, right? By now. Because to touch something like lust, it feels more intrusive than anger. I mean, there's just less shame attached to an anger problem than there is a lust problem, right? No one at this little sermon moment that Christ is holding, no one is glad he's preaching on this. No one is like, good, I need to take notes. I've been hoping he was going to talk on this. I hope it's a long sermon. I mean, not that I struggle with it. I'm just going to send the link on to some of my other friends that I know struggle with lust. That's not what's happening right now. They are all indicted. They all just became aware that they're all adulterers in the eyes of God. Consider how weighty this moment is. Jesus is not changing his mode either. From last week, we see him do something very similar this week. He is shifting the target of people's view. It no longer is it an outward performance issue. It's what your heart is feeling issue, right? That's why you catch him saying the same thing repeatedly. You guys grew up thinking that it was only when your inside garbage came out for everyone to see that that was when it was a problem, murder, adultery. It was in those moments you guys were brought up hearing that that was when things got difficult. I'm here to edit that and tell you that it actually starts in the heart. It starts in the heart. Jesus makes very clear the problem is not just external. 
It's internal first. Lust is generated in our hearts. We don't need a screen for it. We don't need a device for it. We don't need a novel for it. We don't need a neighbor for it. We don't even need a pair of eyes for it. All you need is a heart. It's all you need. Friend, hear me. Just because your lust has not been exposed in something like in an addiction and an affair, it doesn't mean that it's not destroying you. It doesn't mean it's not destroying you. If you harbor lust, it is making you hollow. It is hollowing you out. It is destroying you. It's not serving you. It's not serving you. It's not gonna stay hidden. It's not gonna stay on its leash. Over time, it will destroy everything that's precious. Even if you don't own a romance novel, even if you don't struggle online, do you have moments where you imagine yourself romantically connected to somebody that is outside of what would please God, intimately connected with somebody that is outside God's perfect will for you. Maybe in your heart you hope for just some alternate intimate situation than the one God has given you. You look at what is not yours and you imagine how awesome it would be if it was yours, right? That has a cost. That has a cost. Now listen, and and hold on for this, because just as we saw last week, Last week we saw how anger can be appropriately expressed, right? Righteously, to the glory of God. We did see that. The same thing can happen for lust. I know that sounds odd, but when we lust after someone that God has already given us within the boundaries of his plan, that is a great thing. That is a God-glorifying thing. I know it sounds odd to hear a pastor say that, right? But, I mean, test me in this. Go read Song of Songs. You won't even get to chapter 8 before you're full-on blushing, right? because it reads like a Fabio novel. You're reading it, you're thinking, whoa, there's kids in the room, right? I mean, if you read it, you're not gonna find it in the Jesus Storybook Bible, not in there, right? Veggie Tales didn't touch it with a 10-foot pole, it never will. <laughs> it reads like someone needed to get Solomon and pull him aside and say, yo, that's bedroom stuff. That's stuff that should stay in the bedroom, the way you're talking. I mean, do you realize there's people around that can hear you? But that's not what's happening. Because we have a new memo, lusting after your spouse, it's excellent, it's God glorifying, I encourage it fully, flirt with your spouse, imagine freely, for your good, for her good, for his good, to the glory of God. Because remember, and I say remember as if this is something that you've forgotten, I don't think it's anything anyone in the room has ever forgotten, that sex is God's idea, and it's a gift, right? It's for his glory. And it's for your good. Not just your satisfaction physically good, but for your satisfaction emotionally and for your satisfaction spiritually. Because it's not just bodies coming together. It's souls. Souls mixing. If you're married, your spouse has a soul. You have a soul. God speaks to us in Genesis, Ephesians, Matthew, 1 Corinthians, through different voices at different times, how when two souls unite, they become one. One. It's more than just bodies coming together. And it's also not some necessary evil to populate the earth because God couldn't figure out another way to do it, right? 
Like, like, he's, like he's consulting himself and thinking, well, we can't use storks. That's dumb. No one will even believe that. It's not believable. Can't do eggs. That's what the animals lay eggs. I don't really know what to do, guys. Anyone have any ideas of how we're supposed to populate the earth? I mean, he had endless brilliance, infinite creativity. And the best he could come up with is what we know as sex. And it is for his glory. And it is for our good. Not only would it populate the earth, it would bind us together by design. But like all gifts, we break them, right? We, we break sex like we, uh, spiritual gifts, gifts to us. We break them. Read 1 Corinthians. It's exciting, right? We have community, but we break it. Read Ephesians. We have Jesus, who was God's gift to us, and we broke him too. God doesn't really give us gifts that we don't break. Sex is no different, right? So Jesus is talking to people who are broken sexually, and he is saying, yes, lust is a problem, and yes, adultery is a problem, but it starts in the heart. It's an internal thing. The problem is not external, and so neither is the solution. The problem's not external, so neither is the solution. And I think this is where the church, from time to time, buys into what culture does. Because when culture and the world at large, when they are dissatisfied sexually, they apply external measures as a remedy to fix what they see as broken externally, right? So, hey, if you're not satisfied in your sexual life, then the problem is probably the person or the frequency or the technique or you fill in the blank. That's why I look at the magazines whenever you get to the store. Look at the magazines and on the cover. Seven ways for you to improve in the bedroom, right? How to know if you are compatible or not. Has the flame gone out in your life? It's all external measures to fix what they see as an external problem. The world senses dissatisfaction and applies external fixes. The Christian world does something very similar when it comes to lust. We have an internal issue, but we find external solutions and we try to fix it. It's not enough, though. It's not ever going to be enough, right? Certainly, you're called to be wise with your eyes, with your time, with how you spend your time, who you're with, where you go. We'll talk about that. It is important, but that's not a chief strategy. Like, discipline never solved lust, ever, which is why most everyone in the room struggles with it, right? It's not a discipline thing. It's a bad chief strategy, a bad chief strategy to do what the world does and say, this is an external issue, I'm gonna use external fixes to fix it, right? The breakdown is what's underneath all of that. There's something underneath it. The lust-filled heart is a dissatisfied heart. It's a dissatisfied heart. It's a heart that looks at what God has given and says, not good enough. This marriage, not good enough. She's not good enough. He's not good enough. This isn't good enough. Singleness is not good enough. None of this is good enough. God, you're oppressive. You're holding the best back from me. I should have better. I'm entitled to better. You're not that good. That's a hard issue when you feel like God has ripped you off. That's an internal issue. But God has an internal solution for us. It's a new regenerated heart that grows in its affections for God. The remedy for our dilemma, the remedy for our dilemma is an increasing affection for God. An increasing, not just an affection for God, one that increases, that blooms and grows over time. 
Let's look at Ezekiel 11. I'll put it up on the screen. This has been a great partner passage for us as we've walked through just a few of these sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. I find Ezekiel 11 to be very helpful as a, just a partner Old Testament passage. And it's God speaking and it says, and I will give them, meaning his people, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. New heart, a new heart. Not, not one that doesn't feel or can't be broken, but, but a feeling heart, a living heart, a beating heart, and a new fascination over how much God actually loves us. Right? This is the gospel for you and me. And the gospel is just a, it's a jarring story. It just jolts us. The story of God's favor for you. His, God, his favor for you, totally despite you, as he comes is Jesus to live brilliantly and to die passionately and to be raised again powerfully for you. Not just, a, not just a gospel that saves, but one that sustains and one that defeats lust. It's a jarring gospel that changes us to the very core of who we are, even our sexuality. Even our sexuality. It's so jolting, it's mocked death. It's reversed the garden. Paul says that it's the power of God for salvation. This gospel is only a gospel that strong can overcome lust. That's the only thing. Without that, it's not happening for you. You'll have it for the rest of your life, right? And it's not just a jarring gospel, it's a scandalous one that God would do something like this. If you, if you go and look and you compare Matthew and Luke's version of the crucifixion, Luke, that's the version where you have one of the thieves on the cross just throwing curses and mocking Jesus, and the other one's kind of rebuking the other thief. He's like, hey, listen, we deserve to be up here. We're getting what we deserve, but have you got no fear for God? And then he turns and has a little bit of a dialogue with Jesus, becomes a Christian. Go and read Matthew's version, right? And it says that he was hung between two robbers, and they were mocking him. It was both of them. That's how it started. That's how quick God will change a heart. Well, look, it, it looks like they're, they're kind of contradicting each other. They're not. They're watching the same thing from opposite corners of the intersection, right? When Jesus was first lifted on that cross among those criminals, they were both angry in their hearts. And then in the last, I mean, think about that for a moment. Just consider 99.9999% of that thief's life, of that criminal's life, was spent against God in rebellion to God, and out of nowhere he changes the heart just like that. It's fascinating. And whenever I read that story, I think, what a wasted life. That he would finally see that beauty moments before he dies. What a wasted life. And yet God gladly gave this thief his own righteousness. That's scandalous. This thief did nothing. He brought nothing to the table. That thief is me. Me. God carefully takes every lustful thought you've ever had, even if you didn't even know that that's what it was. Every thought you're having today and every thought you'll have until he calls you home, he takes all of them every single one, and schedules a payment to be made for them on the back of Jesus. And what did you do to get this? Absolutely nothing. 
Nothing, nothing, nothing. That's scandalous. That's, that's fantastic. And when this captures our imagination and our affections grow, they're nurtured and they bloom, lust will lose its grip. This is the chief strategy for beating lust. <laughs> it's not a filter. It's not an accountability partner. It's a growing affection for Jesus Christ and how much God loves you through what he has done for you. That is the only thing. Let me just remind you, today's sermon, just like last week, it's kind of a sermon within a sermon, right? We, we have figured out a way to build a series off of what it took Jesus to maybe take 12 minutes to preach, depending on how fast he could talk. 12 to 15 minutes is how long it takes to rattle through the Sermon on the Mount. And like any good sermon, I mean, if you've ever had a sermon change your life or be very important to you, it, it most likely had what's called a big idea. That's what preachers call a big idea. Some kind of uh, thought that pulls all the loose ends together, something that everything orbits, right? So the big idea for today's sermon is, is the chief strategy for defeating lust is a growing affection for Jesus. That's my big idea today, right? Christ had his own big idea in this Sermon on the Mount, right? And that's that a gospel people are a new, reformatted people, distinct in the world, yet they're to preserve the world as they enjoy God. Right? That's, that's his big idea. And, and like every sermon has a good big idea, good sermons also have application points. It's important to have application points in a sermon. All an application point is, is just this is how the gospel changes how you walk. This is how the gospel changes the way Tuesday morning looks for you. Right? It's important to have that. Christ is doing the same thing, right? That's why anger and the law and lust and divorce and anxiety and money, those are all Jesus' application points for his big idea. How does life look like when we are distinct? Jesus' application for lust is going to be very violent. I'm sure you picked that up as we read it through the first time. It requires a radical energy to fight lust. I'm submitting it's an impossible amount of energy for us to expend. Let's read it. Matthew 5, 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to sin, further down, he says, cut it off and throw it away. This isn't the first time he's spoken like this either. In Matthew 18, verse what is that? Verse 9 and verse 8. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, Jesus says, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. I mean, he, this is violent language. Can I just say real quick, maybe if you're new to this, this is going to be good for you to hear. This is hyperbole. It's hyperbole. He's not really looking for you to do this, right? I say that because I've heard stories growing up, like these folklore stories of people actually doing this. Yeah, I mean, I heard about this person that they're in a motel and they, they read this and then they chopped their hand off. And I remember thinking as a young Christian, like, wow, like, I'm not quite sure you're supposed to do that, but I don't know what else you're supposed to do if that's not what you do, right? This is hyperbole. Jesus talks like this all the time, pushing a camel through the eye of a needle. Good luck with that. Faith the size of a mustard seed, right? Pull the plank out of your eye. We talk like it today, right? I'm so hungry, I could eat a horse, right? I was thinking about that this morning. Eat a horse. It sounds gross, but listen, if you smoke it just right, 
and you put enough barbecue sauce on it, I bet it's pretty good, right? Or that car cost a bazillion dollars. I was sad to learn this week that bazillion is not a real number. I've thought all this time in my 43 years that gazillion and bazillion are numbers. They are not. It's just an exaggeration. It's hyperbole. Jesus is not trying to make a bunch of pirates in this moment with patches over their eyes and hooks for their hands. He's trying to communicate to a people, lust is so dangerous and it can do so much damage, you better be violent, drastic, ferocious, and radical at rooting it out of your life. That's what it's going to take. This would have rocked everybody listening. This would have felt like he's putting something impossible in front of them. No lust? I mean, that's why it feels impossible. Doesn't it feel impossible? A life without lust. I think all some people in the church hope for, I think maybe some of you in the room, all you've been able to hope for is just to keep lust on a leash so that it doesn't shame and embarrass you. Just to keep it tame so it doesn't expose you. Just pretending that it's serving you through a tough season. Or moving the goalposts of what lust even is. And how do we move them? We try to match what the world calls lustful, what the world calls illicit, right? It's not pornography, it's art. I mean, if my neighbor's daughter is reading it, then I should be able to read it, right? I mean, if it's on my news app, it's not that bad. If it's on a billboard, I should be able to look at it 93 times a day, right? I mean, if culture doesn't blink at it, then I shouldn't have to blink at it. Listen to me. Don't turn to culture to define for you what is and is not illicit. It won't do a good job. Not a good playbook, right? The world at large, it objectifies man and woman. To the world at large, you are a physical object, hollow, no soul. Your body is to be enjoyed. It refuses biblical definition. It misunderstands the beauty and the gift of sex. Not only that, but because the culture sees sexual activity as the most direct path to personal fulfillment and life itself, then to go in and start messing with it is to deny yourself of something that feels like you're denying yourself of your own humanity. This is why culture thinks this sermon is stupid. This is why the world at large, the 85% of Knoxville not in the service this morning, if they knew this, this sermon alone, they'd think that's stupid. Fighting lust? To the world at large, lust is something to be celebrated, innovated upon, but fought? Lust is effectively our soul saying that God is not good after all. God is not good. That goes all the way back to the garden, doesn't it? All the way back. Some of you in this room, you have afflictions that are very real. You've been single for a long time and it's been hard. You've been in a difficult marriage. Your marriage didn't turn out like you thought it was gonna turn out, right? When it comes to intimacy or romance or sex itself, it's not looked like what you thought it was gonna look like. It's been tough. It's been hard, it's been work. It's gonna be tempting for you to say, sorry God, this isn't gonna cut it for me. But she is where he is, where that will, and we, we do something up here to escape what we feel like is miserable, to go from what we hate about our life into what feels like a romance novel. Listen, when life is tough, lust will promise a scenario that is far easier, and it will convince you that you're entitled to it. And when we lust for a different scenario than the one God has given us, 
It's because we no longer feel God is good. We don't see that his way is best. We no longer think that he is for us. We're trying to escape his oppression, his unfairness. We don't see him as wise anymore. We just want to escape responsibility. So how do we take this gospel that enlarges our view and affections for God, and how do we see that applied ferociously to a life where we can really fight lust? I think the first thing we do is we repent. I know that sounds basic for a a preacher to say in a sermon, but you have to repent because my goal here is not to kind of equip you with new hacks and techniques in order to feel less guilty about how much you lust during the week. No, this requires repentance for not believing God is who he says he is, for not believing that he's good, for believing that he must be escaped. There's deep repentance, not just for lust, not just for what you looked at, not just for what you did. There is repentance for looking at God and accusing him of saying, you are just not good. You've left me. You're ripping me off and you're oppressive and I'm moving on. That requires repentance. We have to turn from our small view of God We need to turn from our small view of sin. We need to stop building concessions and stop pretending that it's under control. It is not under control, right? But I do think the chief strategy is to develop our imagination and our affections for God. You you know you can nurture your imagination. It doesn't just run free. You can develop it, right? Fix your eyes on how much God loves you and likes you especially as it's expressed through the cross. You do have a beautiful gospel to fix your eyes upon as often as you can. I will say, without an affection that is growing, lust will always be an addiction. It will always be a problem. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you bigger view of God. Ask the Holy Spirit to light your heart on fire for him. Spend time, develop a relationship with God. See, what you're doing is you're starving lust over here, and you're feeding your affections over here. And when they happen at the same time, that is your chief strategy, that is your best opportunity. And then finally, just to be ferocious in what you sacrifice. Some key questions I want you to ask yourself. We're gonna put them up on the screen too. There's only three really, there's like 12, I pick three, okay? When are you most vulnerable to this? You know, you have a finite amount of discipline. Have you noticed that? I mean, when you wake up on Monday morning, you have a tremendous amount of discipline, right? How does Wednesday lunchtime look? It's leaking. I notice that whenever I start the week, I have like a bathtub full of discipline. Someone kicks the plug out, however, and by the time I get to Friday afternoon, I'm reaching for the goal line. We do dumb things when our discipline is low. When are you most vulnerable, right? Stanford did this study on when people use incognito mode on their browsers, because now every browser has an incognito mode, right? So their study was not how many people do it or why people do it, because I think we all know why people do it, but the study was on when are they doing it. Here are the top three times, lunch, end of the workday, between midnight and 2 a.m., right? Tanks are dry, discipline is gone. Maybe for you it's at the end of the week instead of the beginning. Maybe it's after a very emotional, draining thing. I think it's anecdotal because I've never heard or seen any real study done on this, but I've always heard through the years that pastors who do cheat on their spouse, they do so on Mondays. Tanks are dry. Whether it's true or not, it makes sense. Discipline is gone, right? When is your tank dry? When are you most vulnerable? Be wise. Not a great time. 
Not a great time to go visit places and see things that are gonna be a struggle for you, that are gonna fire your imagination off in a toxic direction. Not a good time, right? Another question is, where are you most vulnerable? And I'm talking about routines and places, right? Some are tougher than others. Some of your routine places probably need to go away forever. Forever. Yes, that's inconvenient. Jesus is talking about eyes and hands. There's a ferocious responsibility we have to move radically. Some of you need new jobs. I'm sure you're great at your job, and I'm sure you love it, but the cubicle next to you is going to be a problem, right? Need a new job. Some of you need a new gym, or at least a new time at the gym. You know the top two places that foster infidelity in marriages? Number one, workplace. Number two, the gym. Those are the top two places that are wrecking marriages right now. Right? Don't believe me? Google CrossFit Affair. It's a rampant thing. Third question is who knows about this? Hear me, accountability gets a bad rap, right? But adding community to your growth process, that's never a bad idea. <laughs> that's never a bad idea. Call it accountability. But here's a warning. If your version of accountability is treating somebody like a priest, so that once you've confessed and felt extra dirty and shameful, that they have somehow, by hearing you, atoned for your sin, then you're not doing it right. That's not what accountability is even there for. When you confess and lay your life out for somebody, that is so that they can walk alongside you and minister and shepherd you and consult you and coach you and, yes, rebuke you, but you have someone helping you grow through that. They're not atoning for you, though. And listen, while I'm on the note, if we talked about filters for a second on your devices, I think we all know you can get around those, right? But they're not meant to cure lust either. They're meant to slow you down. I had a guy once, a friend, way back in the day that he had a problem buying things on, on late night, like shop channels. He had like five juicers in his kitchen. <laughs> you know, he, just was, he just loved to buy stuff. He'd stay up late and he'd buy something. He'd come in the mail and he was just fascinated. So he would take his credit card and freeze it in a block of ice. This was his thinking, right? Because he would chip it. He'd, he'd, he'd see something he'd want to buy. He'd start chipping at the ice to get to that credit card. He'd be so tired and worn out. It takes so long to get that dumb card out that he'd be like, what am I doing? I don't want that blender anymore, you know? It would slow him down. That's what your filter is supposed to do. If you catch yourself trying to sidestep a filter on your device, <laughs> you have some bigger questions to ask. That's what you talk to your accountability, help, and community around you about. Trying to sidestep the very things that you committed to do to help you foster a life of purity. It's not going to save you. It's not impermeable. It's just helpful. Listen, I mean, can we agree? I haven't told you anything you haven't known in the last four minutes. All of you could have gone up and just taught what I just did. But then again, ignorance isn't the issue, is it? It's sacrifice. It's doing hard things, making hard decisions. That's why this is hard. Cutting off hands, gouging out eyes. Jesus is getting a point across. He wants you to take this seriously. Okay? Those were all helpful. And I mean, listen, there are books written just on that kind of thing, the tactics, the technical aspects of walking alongside a growing affection for Jesus. But alone, just tips and hacks, they're not going to remedy lust. That's work for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's job is to show you Jesus clearly. 
and to make your heart one that is fascinated with Jesus and what God has done. Go ahead and stand with me. Listen, some of you in this room, you have struggled with lust for eons, forever. And that's because you've handled it as an external issue. I will tell you, I did not begin to find freedom in lust because I found a book that helped me or a filter that was better than all the other filters. I found Christ. I found Christ, and that's where freedom was found. But listen, if you hear this now and you feel the horror for how you've made room for lust in your life, then I want you to be encouraged because if you're an adulterer in this room, you're perfect for the gospel. The gospel of God is perfect for adulterers. Jesus is perfect for those that are addicted to lust. Jesus is perfect for you if you've done more up in your imagination towards defiling than you have towards worship. Jesus is perfect for you. You need to know that. He's calling you home. If you're an adulterer, this is a good day for you to ask some hard questions, sure. To make some vows, okay. To have some hard talks with people around you, sure. But one thing you need to do is when you approach a communion table or you pray or you sing, know that God is excited, that he loves you, that he's encouraged, that he enjoys you, he's pleased in you, totally despite you because of what Christ has done. You don't have to hide. You don't need three weeks to get cleaner. You don't have to prove to him that you can make it a month without screwing up. You don't have to do any of that. You could run right to him today. That is how deep his love is for you. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for being sweet to me, sweet to us. Thank you for building a church full of people that are just total messes and yet at the same time totally cherished. And Father, this is a tough topic. It's not one that anyone's really ever all that excited to read or talk or listen to someone else talk about. But at the same time, Father, we know that your gospel is strong enough to take a room full of people that struggle with something like this and begin to cure our hearts. And Lord, we fail if we walk out of here and we all go download the biggest, baddest filter and we get 19 accountability partners because, goodness gracious, we couldn't be honest with the ones we had. But Lord, that we would succeed by walking out, feeling your joy over us and your love over us, that we would enjoy you above all things, and that our affections for you and our imagination for you would grow and flourish and bloom. Not that we would be a people that just have an affection for you, but a growing and an increasing one, Lord. Lord, let not shame grab a hold of anyone in this room today and say, that is true for everyone except for you. You are extra dirty. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would do a work in us today to waken our hearts, to give us clear view of who you are, and to show us that even in our repentance, you are safe. We can run to you. And Father, I thank you for those even in this room who are still searching, maybe skeptical, and they don't even know about this whole Jesus thing. Lord, that you would regenerate their hearts. 
they walked in with a heart of stone, unable to really feel that, Lord, you would change their heart out and give them a heart of flesh. So that they could see not just the blood on their hands, but they could see the blood on the cross all at the same time. All at the same time. The Lord, you would regenerate hearts, not just in this room, but in this city today. In this city, there would be new life. Lord, we love you, and we, we're very, very, very thankful. You're so good and generous and kind and thoughtful, and you love us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.